Dear Father, we, we turn this time over to you this morning and we ask for your grace because this is a passage that is, uh, is much discussed and often misunderstood. We pray simply, Lord, that your spirit would be at work in our midst, that we would understand that which you have presented to us here, and that we would take it to heart and be changed by it, that we as a body would be knit together in love, in the bond of the spirit, that we would be better for Christ. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Good morning. Well, John has me uh, hardwired and softwired here. I have two mics, so the, the cutting out that, of the mic that's been happening lately should not be the case this morning. I might trip, but other than that, <clears throat> we'll be fine. I want to start by asking if, uh, if you've been doing anything differently since last Sunday. Um, the exhortations that we looked at last week are pretty powerful. Paul says, in light of the fact, of the knowledge that the night is almost done and the day is at hand, we are to lay aside the deeds of darkness and to put on the armor of light. We talked about the fact that, that if we have to do things that we hide from other people because we know they would be seen as shameful, then they are indeed shameful and they're sinful and we should not and must not do them. So one of the questions I wanted to start with today is, has that, has that declaration from God's Word made any difference to you? It needs to make a difference, brothers and sisters. It's made a difference to me this week. Probably not enough, but it has made a difference. It needs to, these exhortations need to pierce our hearts. God has been presenting to us since chapter 12, verse 1, a set of very powerful very forceful exhortations, and we're supposed to be changed by them. So I pray that if uh, if you have not given another thought to what you read last week, that you'd go back and read it again and ask that God would burn it into your heart, even if it burns. Now I'm going to start our discussion about today's passage with a pop quiz. Y'all like those? <laughs> this is an easy pop quiz. It's multiple choice, but there are only two choices for each question. Which of these two is the bigger priority for you? And that question is important. Bigger, not only. Which is the bigger priority, not the only priority. A, convincing your brother to give up his strict rules about Christian living so that he can really enjoy his freedom in Christ. Or B, letting your brother's master deal with his obsession with rules so you can focus on working together with that brother to further the gospel of Christ. Here's the second question. Which of these two is the bigger priority for you? Convincing your new sister in Christ to put godlier and more modest boundaries on the way she dresses. Or B, showing your new sister that she is welcomed into community with you and other believers, just as Christ, through other believers, welcomed you when you were new to the faith with all your baggage. Question number three, which of these two is the bigger priority for you? Convincing a believing couple with kids the same age as your kids to be like-minded with you about what books their children should be allowed to read. 
or B, figuring out how you and your family can love and serve that other couple's family in a way that acknowledges that God is their only master, Lord, and judge, and that you're just an instrument. That's the whole test. Now, since I'm a creature of habit, my quizzes are very predictable. And I'm sure you figured out that B was the answer I was looking for on every one of these questions. <clears throat> With that as a primer to your thinking, let's, uh, let's dive into this passage. Paul begins with an exhortation right at the front of verse 1. And that exhortation is to accept the one who is weak in faith without judging him. He says, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. That's a fascinating verse when you look at the second half, because it, it's as if Paul is seeing in the church in Rome that they're receiving new believers into their midst and then pouncing on them to fix what's wrong with them. And he says, don't do it that way. The word accept is the imperative here. And after explaining in a couple of additional verses what he means by weak in faith, which we'll get to in a moment, and then after posing the same exhortation in the negative, Paul gives the basis for this Strong exhortation to accept the brother who is weak in faith. And the basis is because God has accepted him. Now, in chapter 15, verse 7, a little bit further down, Paul presents that same essential positive exhortation and that same basis again. He says, wherefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us. To the glory of God. The verb accept or receive is used those four times in chapters 14 and 15, always from the same Greek word. And that word has the connotation of receiving into community and fellowship and of treating with kindness and hospitality. There's a very interesting use of that word in Acts chapter 28 when Paul was shipwrecked off the island of Malta and Luke was with him and Luke was writing the book of Acts and so Luke says that in verse 2 he says the natives of Malta showed us extraordinary kindness for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold they kindled a fire and they received us all it's the same word received accepted and the idea is to receive caringly now these two citations that you see up here are part of the same overall passage that goes from chapter 14, verse 1, through about chapter 15, verse 13. And it's all about this issue that we're going to see this morning. In both those citations, we are commanded to accept others in the body of Christ, and the command is based on God's acceptance of them and of us. Just as, just as with all that the scriptures command of us as children of, of God, Christ is our example. Uh, our, our task is simply to follow his lead. After the positive exhortation to accept your brother because God has accepted him, Paul then presents the exhortation from the other side, the flip side of the coin, the negative side, and he says, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. 
And he says, One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. And then he says, verse 3, Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. Regard with contempt. Judge. He uses those interchangeably. And again, the basis for the negative exhortation is the same. There's just one basis here, and that's because God has already accepted it. There, those two synonymous phrases, regard with contempt and judge. To regard with contempt, to regard someone with contempt means that you despise them, that you consider them to be of little or no value or account. Now let's try to break this down a little bit to make sure we're tracking with Paul. The first thing to note about these two exhortations is that they work in both directions. In verse 3, Paul makes this clear. He says, let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. It works both ways. The one who is strong is not to judge the one whom Paul is calling weak here, nor is it to work the other way. There are a couple of angles from which this whole thing doesn't sit very well with us because of our sinful, arrogant, and self-serving tendencies. First, some of us don't like how Paul defines weak and strong. We tend to think that his labels ought to be reversed. We think, surely, the strong believer is the one who most rigorously goes about pursuing holiness, who draws the boundaries tightly, who, in effect, runs a tight ship in his walk with the Lord. And secondly, we have a problem with the idea that uh, those of us who fit into the category that Paul is calling strong don't get to fix those who he calls weak. We consider it our mission to fix weak believers, right? If you find yourself gravitating toward either, either of those complaints as you're looking at this passage, it would serve you well to suspend your thinking for a little while and to humble yourself and to listen carefully to what Paul is saying here because he's not saying what we expect. And what were the specific issues here that Paul is addressing? And which side is Paul labeling weak versus strong? He makes it clear that the one who is weak in faith is the brother who believes he is required to refrain from certain practices that God's word does not explicitly forbid. And he's required to observe certain practices that God's word does not explicitly command of the believer. In other words, the brother who's weak in faith is the one who takes the stricter approach to drawing boundaries on Christian behavior. As I already mentioned, the word receive or accept is used with identical meaning in 14.1 and in 15.7. And in the context in 15.7, Paul is very clearly talking about Jewish believers accepting Gentile believers into community and Gentile believers accepting Jewish believers in the community. In fact, verses 7 to 13 is all about God's inclusion of both in his church. So between Jews and Gentiles, who is Paul saying was weak and who is he saying was strong? Now I agree with Thomas Schreiner on this point that 
Those whom Paul is calling weak believers are by and large, although not exclusively, Jews, Jewish Christians. Those who were insisting on the observance of specific restrictions found in the law of Moses. And the strong were, for the most part, Gentile believers who did not consider themselves constrained to observe those restrictions. Verse 21 later on indicates that the dietary restrictions that are demanded, that were demanded by some in the Roman church included abstaining not only from meat, but also from certain wines. So what's the issue with meat and wine? The law didn't preclude consumption of meat and wine. And the Gentile culture in Rome didn't preclude the consumption of meat and wine unless you were a member of one of the oddball cults. Well, there's a very interesting precedent earlier in the Bible in which Jews abstain from eating meat or drinking wine. If you go back to the book of Daniel, written during Judah's captivity in Babylon, the four young Jewish men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who were captive to Babylon, requested of the Babylonian officials who were in authority over them that they, that they, they be allowed to eat vegetables and water so as not to be defiled by the Babylonian, the unclean meat and wine. The Babylonian dietary practices were radically different than those which were required of Jews. And so they asked, these boys asked for a special dispensation to avoid being defiled, being made unclean before God. Okay. Is there really any similarity between what Daniel and his young friends were dealing with almost 500 years earlier and what's going on here in Rome? Well, in 49 AD, the Emperor Claudius had banished the Jews from the city of Rome. And there's pretty strong evidence that the reason he did so was to put an end to strife that was occurring between non-Christian Jews and Christian Jews. And so, after that banishment, when the Jews came back into the city of Rome in the early part of Nero's reign, before Nero went bonkers, the non-Christian Jews undoubtedly saw the Christian Jews as the ones who had brought down upon their heads all that misery and caused them to have to scatter. And guess who was in charge of the synagogue and the priesthood? and the holy foods. It was the non-believing Jews. And so during that period of time, it was pretty difficult for Jewish Christians to acquire meat from animals that had been properly slaughtered and that had not been prepared in vessels that contained at some point unclean meats like pork. So for those Jewish believers it was probably easier just to not eat meat at all. The same scenario may easily have been true with regard to getting a hold of kosher wines. Uh, what about the issue of treating certain days as holy? Paul says in verse 5 in this chapter that one man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Who was more restrictive on that issue? Well, again, it was almost certainly the Jewish believers who were insisting on a strict observance of holy days that were found in the, in the law of Moses. 
just as they were demanding strictness with regard to foods and wine. Okay, so that was kind of the, the context of what were the issues, the specific issues Paul was addressing. Well, how does God see these issues? Well, it's clear that differences that were occurring in the church over these matters were points of, of serious division in the Roman church. Paul spends a good part of two chapters addressing this. And in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, we find that very similar problems were going on in the church at Corinth. But what does God think about all this? Well, it's very important to recognize that Paul calls these issues differences of opinion. At the end of verse 1, chapter 14, Paul says that we are not to judge that weak brother for the uh, for the, we are not to uh, accept him in the community for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. And the word opinions there means reasonings or thoughts or personal convictions. In verse 5, Paul says of these matters, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. See, he considers these to be differences of personal conviction, not of absolute right or wrong. This is not about behaviors that God's word explicitly requires or explicitly forbids. And that's exactly why they were not of sufficient weight to be allowed to create disunity in the body of Christ. What that means for us is that we must be very careful not to apply what Paul is saying here to things that God has explicitly forbidden or required in his word. And there are many such things. But we must be equally careful that we do apply what he's saying here to differences among believers today that amount to matters of personal conviction as far as God is concerned. So how do we know what those are? What those gray areas, those issues of personal conviction are? Well, they are practices that God's word neither clearly requires nor clearly forbids. If you try to come up with a way to to make that determination other than that, you're going to be falling all over yourself because you'll have no objective basis for knowing. Like it or not, our assignment is not to make clear that which is unclear from Scripture. Now, are these exhortations that Paul's presenting even relevant today? I've talked to some brothers in Christ who really believe that this passage has little or nothing to do with the modern church. They say that, that our Western, mostly Gentile churches no longer have to deal with issues about Jewish dietary restrictions or special holy days. And in effect, what they're saying is that if you attempt to apply these exhortations beyond those very specific matters, that you're misapplying the text. Now, I have a big problem with that approach, and here's why. Every time Paul moves in this passage from talking about specific behaviors to talking about the underlying principles, his words clearly go beyond any time-bound or culture-bound practices. Look at these verses. Verse 4, chapter 14, verse 4, and verses 7 through 12. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. 
Verse 7, for not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Beloved, do those words sound time-bound and irrelevant to you? Paul is speaking with passion, conviction, and authority about a problem that is every bit as divisive in the church today as it was when these words were written. And he's presenting principles that have to do with the sovereignty of God over the lives of his people. Principles that are absolutely relevant to us. We had better not dismiss this passage as time-bound and irrelevant. If we do, we will be dismissing exhortations which, if heeded, will save the church from disunity and ineffectiveness. Okay, so what kinds of behaviors that are common today fall into these areas that Paul is talking about? That is the question that consumes most of the discussion about this passage. But it is not the question on which Paul is focusing. Paul is focusing on the attitude of our hearts toward one another far more than on pinning down specific behaviors. We want knowledge and God wants to give us wisdom. Nonetheless, it's a question I can't reasonably ignore, so I'm going to take just a little bit of time to talk about it. Whatever I would put into my understanding or my list of personal convictions, some of you will say doesn't belong there. And that's absolutely fine. In fact, that tension is precisely why I believe this passage is so important. Because no two people are going to draw the lines in the same places. Here's a very non-exhaustive list of some modern concerns that I have personally seen turn into heated and divisive interactions between brothers and sisters in Christ. Consumption of alcohol. I'm not talking about getting drunk here. That's explicitly forbidden in Scripture. That's not a big deal, it seems, at CBC. I don't hear that discussed much, but I certainly have heard it uh, create some heated discussion in other contexts, other churches. Consumption of unhealthful foods. I personally am amazed at how much traction that gets these days among Christians. How about whether Christians should participate in martial arts or forms of exercise that have historical ties to Buddhism or Hinduism, even if it's Christians teaching the courses? What about parents who let their kids read Harry Potter? How about when to spank your kids, particularly when to spank your kids, not mine? How about whether... When and how to breastfeed in public places. How about the length of a girl's skirt? Or whether two-piece bathing suits should ever be permitted for Christians, or whether instead that should be punishable by death or banishment. (laughs) How about whether a girl's 
legs or bare shoulders should ever be visible at all. How many hours you should let your son play video games in a week, or whether you should let him play video games at all. What genres of music are inherently bad. Where, in very specific terms rather than in principle, to draw the lines on what movies, TV shows, books, and music can be enjoyed by Christians, and so on, and so on. I'm sure if I polled this room, we could come up with several pages of things that fit that sort of debate and category. Now, is it possible that some of our choices on these kinds of issues cross the boundaries of personal conviction and fall into the realm of sin? Yes, it is, especially when it comes to excess. We live in a culture that loves excess. And it's possible that that happens on both sides of each of these issues. Can you make a biblical case in principle, if not in specific, that Boundaries need to be drawn on the appropriateness of many of these behaviors for us as Christians. Yes, you can make a good case for some of those. It is necessary for you to figure out where to draw those lines in your own life and in the lives of your children while they are under your authority. By the way, it's also necessary for us as a church to figure out where to draw some of those lines when we are caring for your kids, when we're ministering in camp settings and in other settings. We can't just make it a free-for-all. But, beloved, does that mean that in the absence of clear evidence of sin, you get to impose your lines, your boundaries on other believers and then judge them when they don't embrace them? God says, no, you don't. Now, consider this for a moment. This really got my attention because it's so tied to what Paul is talking about in Romans 14. In Colossians 2... Paul gets pretty darn specific about certain practices. He says, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now look at that list for a second. Aren't those the same things he's talking about in Romans 14? Food and drink and special holy days? It's the same stuff. In this passage, Paul says quite forcefully that such such practices look pious, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. He says, do's and don'ts regarding what's okay for you to handle or taste or touch are concerns for children, not for adults. He calls them the elementary principles, the ABCs of this world. And he says... That there is no point in spending time being concerned about such things because they are destined to perish with the using and that such rules are in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, not of God. That's pretty strong. And then he explicitly says, you, believer, you do not have to submit yourself to anyone else's judgment regarding such practices. That's pretty one-sided, isn't it? But here's the question. Does that mean that I get to tell another believer he cannot observe special days or abstain from eating certain foods if he considers those practices to be helpful in his walk with God? Based on Romans 14, I do not get to do that. I do not get to take up such matters with my brother. 
Now, how can both those things be true? How can Paul be so forceful about the fact that such practices are of no inherent value for godliness and at the same time tell me I don't get to make an issue of them with another brother whose personal insistence is that he and his family observe those very practices? I'm just supposed to let my brother waste his time doing stuff that's useless? The answer is that when it comes to behaviors that do not clearly constitute sin, it is a far higher priority with God for me to be loving than to be right. It is a far higher priority for me to build up my brother than to get him to see things the way I do, and even, in all respects, the way God does. And that brings us to the heart of this passage. Who are you to judge somebody else's servant? It surprises us here to find that Paul does not say that those who are weak in faith would do better to change their approach, to lighten up and eat all kinds of stuff and stop being so strict. Paul does not say that the solution to this conflict between weak and strong believers is for those who have stricter boundaries to adopt more liberal boundaries. Instead, he says, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. To violate your conscience in order to accommodate somebody else's conscience, that is not good. In fact, Paul says that is sin. You'll talk a lot more about that in the later in the chapter we'll look at next time. It is not legitimate for believers who consider themselves to have greater freedom in these disputed areas to impose those convictions on others, and the converse is also true. It is not legitimate for believers who consider themselves to have less freedom in certain areas to impose those convictions on those who believe they have more. We don't like that, do we? But this is very, very important. There is a very strong, very hurtful, and very divisive tendency by those on both sides of these kinds of issues to point the finger at brothers and sisters in Christ who think differently than they do. That's why Paul is writing this. The the more laid-back believer points at the strict believer and he says, If you really understood grace, you would not take the approach that you're taking. And on the other hand, the one who holds the stricter view points his finger at that libertine believer and says, if you really cared about holiness, you wouldn't allow yourself to do the kind of stuff that you're doing. And so both sides are bent on fixing those who take the other perspective. Of course, there are people in the middle of the spectrum, too, people who are saying, I don't have a clue where to stand on this. I wish someone would help me. The problem is on those those polar ends of the spectrum. One says, you don't care about grace, and the other says, you don't care about holiness. And the very heart of Paul's exhortation in this passage, his main point is that we need to stop pointing. The judging that we are so quick to do is prideful and hurtful and destructive and arrogant and it tears the body of Christ apart and it is sin. 
Paul does not say that it's sin to have a hyperactive conscience. Nor does he say it's sin to consider yourself to have great freedom to do some things that some believers are uncomfortable doing. He says it is sin to judge your brother in such areas. Why is that so hard for us to get? Are those of us on both sides of these issues willing to humbly receive this forceful exhortation from God through Paul? Are we truly willing to humbly hear and heed what he's saying? Or are we just going to kill it by the death of a thousand qualifications and end up sidestepping it and making it irrelevant? That's largely what the church in this age has done. It has made these passages irrelevant so that it can go on pointing fingers and building up egos. I said earlier that the central critical question of this passage is not what specific behaviors fall into the gray areas or personal conviction areas and thus should not be allowed to divide the body. That's the question we love to camp out on when we come to these chapters, but it is not the question that's at the heart of the passage. There are three far more relevant questions that we should be asking instead, and Paul's going to answer those questions in verses 4 through 12, and we're going to move through them pretty quickly. Here are the three questions. Who is your brother's master? Who is your brother's Lord? And who is your brother's judge? In verse 4, Paul says... Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. A few minutes ago I said when it comes to behaviors that do not clearly constitute sin, it is a far higher priority with God for me to be loving than to be right. It is a far higher priority for me to build up my brother than to get him to think the same way I do or even in all respects the way God does. But God has another major challenge in this verse to our misplaced priorities. It is a far higher priority with God for me to demonstrate to my brother that I trust his real master to conform him to Christ rather than trusting myself to conform him to Christ. We are called to be servants of one another in Christ, and that's a critical part of our outworking, the outworking of our servanthood and submission to God. But I never get to demand that you serve me. God might demand that of you, but I don't get to demand that of you. And you never get to demand that I serve you. You're not here to do my bidding, and I'm not here to do yours. We're here to do God's. And he is the one and only one who can mold your heart to his. I can't do that for you. I can't even begin to do that for you. And you can't do it for me. I cannot make you stand as a vessel of honor before God. And you can't make me stand. But you and I both stand indeed. We stand spotless and blameless in the eyes of God because he has clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the day is going to come when we will stand sinless in the presence of God. And in both cases, it is all and only because of what He, our Master, has done. Don't don't be afraid to say amen. 
<laughs> I love you, brother. However God chooses to use us as instruments in one another's lives, let us be very clear about this. You and I are never the source. We're just instruments. You and I are not the ones who make each other stand. God is. All right. Who's your brother's master? God. Who's your brother's Lord? It's <laughs> very interesting. Look at the number of times in verses 5 through 9 that the phrase for the Lord, to the Lord, or to God show up. Now, when we hear the word Lord, we generally think of it as equivalent to the word master. Now, it always, when it's referring to Christ, it always includes God's sovereign mastery over us, but it goes far beyond that. It is much more encompassing than that. When Paul uses the, the Greek word kurios, Lord, I'm convinced that he uses it as the New Testament equivalent to the Hebrew word Adonai, which was the word that meant Yahweh. Okay? When Moses met God on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 3, and God told them that he was going to use him to deliver his people, Israel, from Egypt, Moses said, okay, who am I to say sent me? In other words, who are you? And God said, here's my covenant name to all generations. It's Yahweh. I am. Now the Jews considered that name too sacred to speak or to write, so they replaced it. With the word Adonai. Actually, they changed the vowel pointing on Yahweh so that it would, it would reflect that when it was read, it was to be read as Adonai. The New Testament equivalent to that word is Lord. When Paul calls Jesus Christ Lord, he means Jesus is Jehovah. He is Yahweh. He is the one and only true God. That understanding of the word Lord fits entirely with what Paul says right here in this passage. He uses God and Lord interchangeably. He's talking here about Christ as God and about God as provider in all things. And here's how his argument flows. I'm going to put it in a series of a few subordinate questions. Does your brother in Christ observe special days in order to remember what you've done for him or what God has done for him. Now, Bob doesn't know this yet, but I take a whole day off work every year just to remember the day that he fixed the air conditioner on my 75 Chevy C20 van. <laughs> I don't have the van anymore, but I have the air conditioner, and it's on a shelf, and it's in a little shrine, and every year I buy flowers, and I put them beside that air conditioner, and I take that day off. Not really. <laughs> I am very grateful to my brother Bob for helping me with that and with dozens of other car issues over almost 30 years. But I haven't actually set aside a holiday to celebrate, celebrate my gratitude to. See, I thank God for my brother Bob. God is my provider. Bob is one of his faithful instruments. And that's a lot, but that's all. Paul is saying that when a Christian observes a special day, he observes it unto God to remember God's faithfulness in some respect. And that is not a bad thing. 
Second of the subordinate questions is, does your brother pray to give thanks to you for providing the food he's about to eat? Or does he pray to God? If he prays to you, his thanks is grievously misplaced because even if you cooked the food and handed it to him, you're not the source, you're just an instrument. God is our only provider. God is our only security. God is our only everything. Now, your brother gives thanks to God for the food that God has provided, and that's a good thing. Whether he eats it or whether he decides not to eat certain foods, he still gives his thanks to God as his provider, and that's a good thing. Why should you care what days your brother does or doesn't observe as special or what food he does or doesn't eat when he observes the day unto God and he gives thanks unto God for his food? Why are such things of any concern to you? Does your brother live or die unto you? That's his third subordinate question. Paul said in chapter 6 that we who belong to Christ have been buried with him in the likeness of his death. We've been raised with him to newness of life in the likeness of his resurrection. In him we have died to sin and we now live to God. And whether we continue for a time in these physical bodies or our physical lives end, We will always be the Lord's. He bought us. We belong to Him. And Jesus is is the God of both the living and the dead. Verse 9 says, For to this end Christ died and lived again that He might be Lord both of the living and the dead. That doesn't mean Jesus became God when He died on the cross. It means that His death and resurrection made us His. They made us servants of the living God forever, whether we live or die. It means that Jesus overcame the curse of the fall. Paul's point throughout this passage is that we do not answer to one another ultimately because our only true accountability is to God. Verses 10 to 12 answer a third major question here. The first was, who is your brother's master? The second, who is your brother's Lord? And the last is, who is your brother's judge? Paul says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? And then look at how he counters that mindset. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. The judgment seat Paul is talking talking about here is the Bema seat. It's the judgment of Jesus Christ to dispense the rewards to believers based on how they have lived this side of heaven. It's not the judgment of unbelievers for eternal condemnation. That's talked about in Revelation 20. It's called the great white throne judgment. Okay. God is our brother's judge. He is our brother's Lord. And he is our brother's master. As soon as we hear the forceful words that Paul presents in this passage, we immediately start with the yeah buts. 
Yeah, but aren't we supposed to correct Christians who are still clinging to the letter of the law? Paul says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. If I love my brother, I'm not going to let him hang on to the letter, right? And the other brother says, yeah, aren't we supposed to insist on practical holiness? If my brother's letting his daughter wear skirts that are too short, isn't that my responsibility to deal with? We've got to recognize this. Whatever we do with those questions, we have to reckon with this. Just as with all of Paul's other exhortations in this chapter and in chapters 12 and following, there are no yeah buts in the passage. Instead, there are core principles about the sanctified life that we are supposed to embrace as so much more important than the exceptions that we don't spend much time worrying about the exceptions because we are bent on the principle. We are focused on the principle. Paul has presented us here with one of those foundational principles, and here it is. It is not your assignment to judge your brother with regard to behaviors that are not clearly commanded or forbidden in his word. And it is not your assignment to make clearer that which is unclear. Since Jesus Christ is my brother's master, my brother's God, and my brother's judge, which should I be doing more of? Pouncing or praying? Correcting or encouraging? Persuading or loving? What does the world see when they look at us? When those who are outside looking in at the church of Jesus Christ look hard at the way we deal with each other, what are they seeing? Do they see us looking for Christ in each other? Do they see us bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things, or do they see us picking at all things? Do they see us believing the worst of each other? Do they see us nagging? Do they see us turning the Christian life into a burden that God never intended it to be? I'm going to finish with something that might surprise you after hearing everything else that I've said so far this morning. I believe legalism is about attitude more than it is about content. My beloved and highly trusted brother Greg Watson challenged me on this Wednesday morning and I have not stopped thinking about it since. If a brother comes to me with a criticism or concern and he does so in humility and love with an obvious awareness that if I spent any time looking at his life I would find points at which he misses the mark of Christ's character. If he comes to me with that heart of humility and grace and love, he can say whatever he has on his mind, and I cannot call it legalism. Legalism is about self-righteous hypocrisy. It is the pretense of concern for God's character, but without the love and genuine humility that are the very most essential evidences of God's character in us who deserve condemnation and have been redeemed unto life. Legalism is the pretense of concern for holiness, but without 
the selfless preference for the other person's well-being over one's own that is the stamp of holiness. Beloved, it is infinitely more important for us to be loving than to be right. And the only way we will ever be right in the eyes of God when we are correcting a fellow slave and a joint heir of Christ is when we are, above all else, loving. If we simply love each other as we have been loved by God and Christ, everything else will fall beautifully into place. And the light of Jesus Christ in this church will be blinding. Loving Father, I pray together with my brothers and sisters that you will, you will burn these things into our hearts. This is not easy for us to accept. This goes so counter to the way we tend to think and act. Father, make us to understand holiness the way you present it. Make us servants of our one master whose lives are all about loving as we have been loved forgiving as we have been forgiven, forbearing as you have been forbearing toward us, and serving one another as we have been served by the Master of all. Father, make these things clear to us. Make them matter to us. Do not let us forget them or set them aside. Change us, Lord. Conform us. Transform us. We pray this in Christ's precious name and for his exaltation. Amen.